Well, good evening. It's uh, nice to see you. It's been a while since we've been able to be here. Always glad to have this opportunity to talk with you. And Brent is always glad when uh, he can give it, get a little bit of rest <laughs> instead of uh, working himself to death. So that's good. One of the things that I always have enjoyed doing on a holiday period of time is telling a Bible story and getting the lessons out of the Bible story. So this evening, we're going to talk about a king that is unusual in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's unusual because most of the kings of Israel, God never chose. They just simply fell into place or murdered somebody in order to take the throne. But King Jehu was a king that God actually chose and chose for a very important purpose. The story really begins back in the days of Ahab, which was many years prior to the time of Jehu and starts back in 1 Kings chapter 16. Ahab was a king who was the son of a very wicked king named Omri. Omri, in fact, in secular history, uh, attains to much greater uh, significance and does a whole lot more than Ahab ever thought about doing as far as anything in a secular way. However, God only wants to tell us mostly about Ahab and not Omri, even though Ahab is really a nobody uh, when you look at it historically uh, separate from what other kings had done. But Ahab's notable part, and as most of us know, Ahab was notable because of his great wickedness, and he compounded his wickedness by marrying a woman named Jezebel, and uh, ever since that time, nobody wants to name their daughter Jezebel, at least I haven't heard of any, let's hope not. Uh, But Jezebel was the daughter, she is a foreigner, she's a Syrian, she's the daughter of of a king named Ethbaal. You can imagine how he got that name. He's calling himself after Baal worship, king of the Sidonians. And uh, he marries her and brings her down. And of course, because of her, uh, Ahab wants to please her and he institutes Baal worship in Israel. He doesn't do it just a little bit. Because Ahab uh, brings in not only Baal worship, he builds a temple to Baal, an altar to Baal, and then he even erects an image to the female goddess of Asherah, which was a Canaanite uh, fertility goddess. So Ahab goes all out in disobeying the Lord and going far beyond uh, what, of course, any king had done before him and becomes notable as one of the worst kings in history. And Ahab reaches the pinnacle of his wickedness in a very lengthy story that God tells about a man who lived next door to King Ahab, a man named Naboth, who had a vineyard next door, and Ahab desired the vineyard. Of all things, and I thought about this more over and over again as I've read this story, of all things... Ahab wanted the vineyard to make a vegetable garden out of it. I don't know that you could do anything more horrible than to destroy a vineyard and make a vegetable garden out of it. 
A vineyard is something very, very valuable. And yet here's Ahab just following the whims of his heart. And he thinks it'd be so cool if right next door to his house, he could plow all that under and make a vegetable garden and grow squash or something. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, look, I'd I'd love to buy your vineyard. And if you don't want to sell it to me, I'd be glad to to trade you and give you a far better vineyard than this vineyard. If you'll just let me have uh, this vineyard that you have so I can make a vegetable garden. Uh, Now, Naboth rightly says, sorry, king, I'm not going to do that. That is just absolutely out of the question. That's impossible. Uh, This is the inheritance of my fathers. This goes back to the days in which uh, we came into the land of Canaan uh, well over 700 years ago. And there is no way that I'm going to give up the inheritance of my fathers and give it to you, even if you are a king. Well, I would imagine for most people, a rejection like that would be just, oh, I gave it a try, so what? But not Ahab. Ahab acts like a three-year-old and goes to his room and pouts and whines. And so much so, he's so dejected by it that he even refuses to eat. Word of that comes back to his wife Jezebel who goes in and says, what is up? And he says, well, Naboth just won't give me his vineyard. And he's whining about it and everything. And Jezebel says, oh, well, aren't you a king? A king can have whatever he wants. And he, she says, I'll get that vineyard for you. And so she goes to the leaders of the city and she says, I want you to throw a great feast for Naboth. And I want you to set him in high honor. And, and then uh, when he is set in this high honor, I want you to bring a couple of scoundrels in who accuse him of blaspheming God and then take him out and stone him. I would like you to just think for a moment and imagine what it would be like to be Naboth. You've just rejected Ahab. And then all of a sudden, the men of the city come and say, we think you're so wonderful that we're going to throw a big feast for you and set you up in high honor. Anybody suspicious? Boy, wouldn't that make you nervous? Uh, you know full well that you live next door to the worst woman on the face of the earth. And you live next door to a king who will do anything to do to get whatever he wants. And all of a sudden, after you've rejected the king, you're being exalted. I, I can't imagine how nervous he must have been sitting up in that honorable place just for the few minutes until the scoundrels came in and began to accuse him of blaspheming God. And what could he do? Nothing. He is taken out and stoned to death. And Jezebel comes and says, Well, Ahab, old Naboth is dead. The vineyard is yours. Ahab jumps out of bed. He's so excited. He thinks nothing of what has been done to Naboth goes down to take possession of the vineyard and enter, of course, God. God sends the great prophet Elijah to go and challenge and meet uh, meet Ahab there at Naboth's vineyard. You can just imagine Ahab standing there at the vineyard next door to his kingly house and imagining what he's going to do and maybe plotting out and planning how he's going to make his vegetable garden and upsteps Elijah. Now, how does Ahab always greet Elijah? <laughs> do you remember? 
Ahab greets Elijah by saying, Well, O enemy, have you found me? (laughs) Always calling Elijah the enemy because Elijah won't let Ahab have whatever this three-year-old brat wants to have. He's always getting on him about it. Well, you found me, you O enemy. And of course, Elijah says, Oh yeah, I found you. Because you have sold yourself to do evil, you have murdered, and now you have come to take possession. And just as any prophet would do at that particular point, you ought to know, Ahab, what's going to happen next. He is going to pronounce the judgment of God on you. And that's exactly what Elijah does. First off, the dogs who lick the blood of Naboth are going to lick your blood, Ahab. Secondly, Every male of your house is going to be killed. They're going to die throughout all of Israel. Can you imagine being told that every single male will be destroyed so that there is no descendant of you, Ahab? You are going to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. And as for your wife Jezebel, in the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, the dogs are going to eat your wife. And then when it's all that is all done, whoever dies of the house of Ahab out in the field, the birds are going to eat. And whoever dies in the city, the dogs are going to eat. This is going to be your lot, Ahab. And Elijah leaves. I can't imagine what Ahab was feeling at that time, except to note a shocking thing takes place. Ahab repents. Now that is one of those things that you just can't hardly imagine. Ahab repents. Ahab goes about in sackcloth. He he went about dejectively. He, He realizes the terribleness of what has happened. He humbles himself. And then there's something even more shocking than the repentance of Ahab. And that shock is that God even shows mercy toward Ahab. I have to tell you, and I I don't know, you probably would would amen this as well. I don't think I'm that good. (laughs) I I don't think that that Ahab's little repentance here would have changed my mind at all. But God does something that God often does throughout Scripture. When an individual, no matter how bad, no matter how evil, shows some repentance, God then will meet them and say, hey... And give them some mercy and hope beyond hope that maybe they will see this gift of mercy as an opportunity to complete their repentance and make a full turn to God. God does not like the death of the wicked. And he gives Ahab this little opportunity, this little glimpse of the kind of mercy that God can show him. I would imagine that when Elijah came and told Ahab that, he would, have, he would have been just blinking and saying, what? Yeah, really? You told me some good news, Elijah? You're not the big enemy that I thought you were. He gives him that opportunity. But it's so often is typical of a man or a woman whose heart has practiced evil for so many years. The humility that he shows is short-lived. Within three years, God again can see the hardness of Ahab's heart. And God decides it's time for Ahab to die. 
Ahab has desired to go and attack Ramoth Gilead, who is part, Ramoth Gilead, a city in the north, part of the nation of Israel, but has been conquered by Syria. And he wants it back. And so he decides he is going to go and take that city, but he enlisted, uh, uh, he asked for the help of uh, King Jehoshaphat. Now remember Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat's a good king. In every kind of way, a very, very good king. There's only one little weakness with Jehoshaphat. He can't seem to see anything wrong with Ahab. (laughs) And he keeps making friends with Ahab. In fact, the union between the children of Jehoshaphat and Ahab are the absolute beginning of the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. But Jehoshaphat goes up and sees Ahab, and Ahab says, Hey, I'd like to go up and conquer Ramoth Gilead and get it back for my nation. Would you go up with me and help me conquer it? Jehoshaphat says, Sure. My, my, my soldiers are your soldiers. Let's go do it. But before we do, let's inquire of the Lord to find out what God says about this. Oh, well, Ahab sure says that's fine. And Ahab gathers 400 prophets of Baal and lines them up and they all come in. And they, of course, to the 400th man say, oh, yes, you will be successful. Go up and conquer. One guy even puts on a pair of horns and goes around pretending he's budding people and says, oh, you will definitely conquer and you will be successful. Now, Jehoshaphat is not fooled by any of this business. And Jehoshaphat looks at Ahab and he says, well, that's real cool, but can we we ask a prophet of the Lord? Is there not a prophet of the Lord around here? And Ahab says in one of the funny statements, I'm sure not to God and certainly not to Jehoshaphat. Oh, yeah, we've got one prophet of the Lord around here, a guy named Micaiah, but I hate him because he always speaks evil concerning (laughs) Ahab always thinks it's someone else's fault. Well, bring Micaiah in. So as they're bringing Micaiah, all the messengers are saying to Micaiah, now here's what all the other prophets are saying. You say the same thing. Everything will be fine. Just tell them what they want to hear. And of course, Micaiah says, whatever the God says, that's what I'm going to do. And it's pretty evident that when Micaiah comes into the presence of King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, that uh, this kind of meeting with Ahab is not the first. (laughs) And so when Micaiah comes in and Ahab says, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead or not? And Micaiah answers, obviously, even though the text doesn't specifically say this, it's pretty evident that he answers with a surly kind of way because he says, oh, sure, go on up and conquer. You will be successful. Ahab catches that right off and he says, how many times do I have to tell you to tell me the truth? Uh, Well, We have already learned that Ahab doesn't want the truth. He's paid 400 guys to tell him whatever he wants to hear. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that there are 400 false prophets and one true prophet? That is something we need to remember. When God brings a prophet, Satan brings 400. Satan always multiplies anything that God does and just makes it expands it beyond so that it looks like that the majority is right because Satan knows we're impressed with the majority. 
And so there's one lone prophet telling the truth and 400 prophets who are telling a lie. Who are we going to believe? Who do we want to believe? And Ahab, of course, doesn't want to believe Micaiah. And he strikes Micaiah gone and uh, tells Micaiah, look, uh, I want to know the truth. And Micaiah says, oh, you would like to know the truth. Well, here's the truth. Tomorrow, when you go to up against Ramoth Gilead, all is going to be, you are the shepherd, you are going to be killed, and all of your armies are going to scatter and go back home, and that's going to be the end of that. You're going to die. And so Ahab turns around and says, send him to the dungeon and give him bread and water to, to eat and drink, and that's that. And Micaiah, before he leaves, he says, let me tell you what happened. Now this is really interesting. Let me tell you what happened. God gathered, hear this, God gathered all the host of heaven all around him, both left and right hand. Uh, that is a lot. I don't know how many are up there on with God. But he gathered all the host of heaven. And he asked them, he said, look, I want to put Ahab to death. Can anyone give me a plan by which Ahab will die? And one spirit said this, and one spirit said that, and they had this big conflab. And in the end, finally, one spirit said, I know how we'll get him dead. He, we'll be, we could, I can be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he will believe them and go out and die in battle. And God said, that's, that's a good idea. Let's do that. You will go and be a lying spirit and he will believe you and he will die in battle. And he sends him to do that. And so Micaiah says, all of these false prophets, they have a lying spirit in them. And the Lord, and here's what he said, the Lord is deceiving you with this lying spirit. The Lord is making this happen so you will die. The Lord has been a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. You think God would do that to you today? Of course he would. He says he would. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 through 11, God says that anyone does not love the truth so as to be saved, he will send them a strong delusion that they might believe a lie and be destroyed for all of those who do not love the truth. That is a powerful warning. We can listen to all kinds of other things, but what needs to clear in our minds is regardless of how many others say it's one way, if God says it's this way in His Word, that's what we're going to follow because we love the truth. And it doesn't matter if all around us say it's something different and, and disdain us for our position on it. What God says is what we're going to follow. And that's exactly what God will do when He sends that delusion. Micaiah is taken off, and that's the end of that. And the next day, they go to battle. Now, I, I got to say that Jehoshaphat, I, I begin to wonder sometimes who is dumber, Jehoshaphat or Ahab. <laughs> because Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, okay, look, we're going to go into battle tomorrow. 
And uh, I'm not going to wear my kingly robe, but you wear your kingly robes because then when they all see you, they'll think they're, that you are me and they'll go after you and won't go after me. And Josephat says, oh, sounds like a good idea to me. I, I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I, what? Where do you come up with this? Absolutely crazy. And so, there we go. They go into battle. Josephat's in battle with all his kingly robes on. And Ahab has disguised himself so nobody can see that he's the king. And, of course, what do the Syrians do? They go chasing after Josephat because they have been commanded, don't worry about anybody else, just worry about killing Ahab. And so they chase Josephat, thinking he's Ahab. Just about time they've got him, Josephat cries out, and they realize, wait a minute, that's not Ahab. And they just leave him alone. And can't find him. And then one particular soldier on the Syrian side just takes his, his bow and draws an arrow. And he just randomly shoots it. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Oh, haven't shot my arrow in a while. And he just shoots it. And God just takes that arrow and he just guides it right down to hit in that one little itty bitty gap in Ahab's armor. Whack. And he falls down and his chariot is propped up by his chariot uh, driver just to act like he's alive until the end of the day and dies and bleeds out in the chariot. And as they're washing out the chariot at the end of the day, the dogs lick Ahab's blood. And thus the end of Ahab. Ahab's son takes the throne, Ahaziah. He only reigns about two years and he's not smarter, any smarter than his father. He falls through a lattice about two years later and his house uh, is uh, uh, is wondering whether he's going to live or die. Instead of inquiring of the Lord, he inquires of Baalzebub, uh, of course, uh, the king of, the, of Baal and all of this. And because he's done that, God condemns him. He dies And then his brother, because he had no children, his brother Joram then takes the throne. And Joram reigns then uh, after him. In the meantime, it is time for God to enter into the situation of doing something about the house of Ahab, just as he has planned that he would do. And so after Joram takes the throne and after reigning 11, 11 years, Joram is injured in battle. Guess where? Raymond Gilead. That battle is still going on year after year, going nowhere, and he's injured in battle. And so he goes back home to the castle, to the house where the King Ahab used to live in where? Jezreel. Now remember the name Jezreel. Jezreel was where Naboth Vineyard was. Jezreel is where King Ahab lived. Jezreel is where his son Ahaziah lived. Jezreel is now where his other son Joram lives. And he goes back home to heal of his wounds. In the meantime, there is a king in the south, in Judah, who is the grandson of Jezebel. Because there's been this intermarriage. His name is Ahaziah. And he hears of his relative who is ill, who has been shot and recuperating in Jezreel. And so he goes north and to help and comfort uh, his, uh, his relative Joram, he goes up and uh, spends some time with him in Jezreel. Enter the next prophet, Elisha. 
And Elisha sends a messenger to Jehu, who happens to be a captain in Joram's army at Ramoth Gilead in the battle there. And he goes up there and he calls him aside out of a, out of a big uh, dinner that they're having. And he takes him and he anoints him with oil. And he says, you're the next king over Israel. And here's what God has commanded you to do. You are to wipe out all of the household of Ahab and you are to wipe out Baal worship in Israel and God has appointed you and if you obey the word of the Lord, you, your children will reign on the throne to the fourth generation and God will bless you. Now go and he takes off. Well, (laughs) it's kind of funny because Jehu walks back in, acts like nothing has happened and everybody goes, what was that babbler telling you? Oh, no, nothing. Oh, yes, he was. What was he telling you? Well, he's telling me I'm the next king. Now I'm supposed to wipe out the house of Ahab. They said, let's go. And everybody joins him and they leave Ramoth Gilead and they head to where? Jezreel, of course. And just lo and behold, you're not, you don't have one king there. You don't just have Joram. You have Ahaziah there, whose wonderful mother, Athaliah, who is the wonderful daughter of Jezebel. They're there. And so here we go. Now, one of the most interesting, and I have always thought hilarious stories, is as Joram and Ahaziah are in the castle there, the, the watchman on the wall looks out and he says, someone's coming. And there's a cloud of dust and here they come. And Joram immediately says, send a messenger out and see who it is. And the messenger goes out and you, I don't guess they have binoculars in those days, but he, he's watching and the messenger goes out and he says, he says, uh, is it, is it uh, peace? Is it peace? And he says, get behind me. Well, the watchman on the wall says, uh-oh, he's not coming back. Send another messenger. The messenger, another messenger goes out and he gets there and he says, is it peace? And he says, get behind me. And the, mess, the, the watchman on the wall goes, uh-oh, uh-oh, he's not coming back either. Well, that's when Joram says, Ahaziah, get in the chariot. Let's go out and meet him. And they get out to meet him. And here he comes and he looks and he sees his Jehu. Well, he kind of knew that because the man on the wall said, I believe it's Jehu, for he drives that chariot furiously. Um, some people still drive that way today. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. And so he's here he comes in and he says, and they say, is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu says, how can it be peace with the harley trees of your mother and all the wickedness and evil that she does? At which Joram says, treachery, Ahaziah, treachery. And they turn to, to flee And Jehu takes his bow and strings it back full bore and shoots Joram right through the heart as he is leaving. And then does the same thing to Ahaziah. Two kings at once. How fortunate is that? Who's next, Jehu? Who's next? Oh, Jezebel is next. Where's Jezebel? Well, she's, of course, in the house there in Jezreel. And so he pulls up with all his men. Now, Jezebel has heard what has happened. I don't know, ladies, whether if you would do this or not. She paints her face up real pretty. Yep, they had makeup in those days. And she puts her best makeup on. And when Jehu pulls out, she hangs her pretty head out the window. And she says, she says to Jehu, Well, what have you done, Zimri, murderer of your master? Zimri is a former captain who had killed his, his king, Baasha. 
Uh, what are you doing here, Jehu? And Jehu looks up, and there's a couple of eunuchs standing in the window behind a Jezebel. And he says, anyone on the Lord's side up there? And the two eunuchs kind of go, uh-huh. <laughs> you can just imagine. Those eunuchs can go, oh goody, can we really get rid of this woman? <laughs> and he says, throw her down. Woo! I can just picture Jezebel flying out the window head first to the ground and all the horses that are there just trampled her to death. Now, after a tough day like that, what would Jehu do? Well, he's going to go inside and have dinner, of course. It's been a wonderful day. And so he goes inside, they fix him dinner, and as he's finishing the dinner, he tells one of his captains, he says, look, go out there and bury that woman. After all, she was a daughter of a king. Go out and bury her, but when they get out there, they find only her head and uh, her feet that are left. And she has been dragged off and eaten by the dogs, just like Elijah said would happen. Who's next, Jehu? Oh, well, we've got to get rid of the 70 sons of Ahab. And so he sends a message to the city where the 70 sons have been kept. And he sends this message and says, choose one of the sons to be the next king, and then I'll go out and meet him. Now, those who were caretakers of the son went, sons went, uh, no, I don't think we're going to do that. What do you want? And he says, oh, well, if you're not going to do that, send me all 70 heads of these kings and, uh, and of these sons of, of Ahab. Send me all the heads. And so that's what they do. They cut off all the heads of the 70 sons of Ahab. And he mounts them up at the entrance of the city with two big piles at the entrance of that city of those heads. What a beautiful picture. Isn't that something you want a story you want to tell your five-year-old before you go to bed at night? That's uh, that just sounds really great. Uh, so so anyway, taking care of that. Well, uh, well, who's next? Well, then he goes and he kills every single relative that he can find of the house of Ahab all through the land of Israel, and then turns from there to get rid of Baal worship. Mm, Jehu was smart. He walks into Samaria and he says, if you thought Ahab served Baal, you watch what I do. I will serve Baal far more than he did. And he gathers, he calls all of the Baal worshipers, everybody into the temple of Baal. We're going to have the greatest sacrifice ever to Baal. He calls them all in and packs the house with Baal worshipers and the priests of Baal and pulls them all in there and locks the doors and then sends in his men and kills all of them, then tears down the temple, tears down the altar, tears down the image, destroys idolatry to bail out of the land of Israel. Boy, about that time, you just want to do a cheer for Jehu. You just want to say, wow, finally, finally, we have a king in Israel. A king who respects God. A king who will obey and do the will of the Lord. As Jehu has taken all of this. And even God commends Jehu. Listen to the words. Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart. Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. What a commendation. You don't hear that kind of commendation to any of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. God had chosen him 
Just like he had chosen Jeroboam way, way in the first king, he had chosen one more king of Israel, and Jehu does the will of the Lord. But the rest of the story is actually not in Kings. The rest of the story is in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1, Hosea is a prophet who lives just after this. And Hosea's, the beginning of Hosea are these words. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Gibleam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. You remember that name? Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, shocking words. Suddenly we hear these amazing words, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, wait a minute, God. You commanded that blood to be shed in Jezreel. You commanded all the house of Israel to die. You directly told Jehu to do this. In fact, you commended Jehu for doing this. And now you turn around and you say you're going to wipe out the whole house of Jehu for the blood that he shed that you commanded. How can that possibly be? The way that is possible is because there's something we missed. Jehu never obeyed one thing God said to do. I know that may seem shocking. But that is the point. Jehu never obeyed anything God said to do. And the reason we know that is because right after God commended Jehu, the very next words were, he continued to worship calf worship and follow calf worship in Israel. And continue to do evil. You see, Jehu obeyed what the Lord said only because that's what Jehu wanted to do. Jehu just happened to agree with that. I mean, wouldn't you? You could be the next king. And you can, if you will just destroy all the household of the king before you. And turn and serve the Lord. Well, that sounds great. I'll destroy all the household of Jehu. That'd be, I'd be happy to do that. Do I like Baal worship? No, I don't like Baal worship. I like calf worship though. And so he turns and destroys all the house of Jehu only because that's what he wanted to do anyway. I want you to consider something. Every one of us have a tendency to be like Jehu. 
There's about 90% or so, and you could give or take a little bit on that. There's about 90% of the commandments of God that you and I are happy to keep. When God says, don't get drunk, I say, fine, I didn't want to anyway. I can go around preaching to everybody else about getting drunk. When God says, don't commit sexual immorality, I find fine, I didn't want to anyway. I got a wonderful wife, why should I? I don't need that. You know, there's all kinds of things that God says not to do and God says to do. And I'm happy to do. Because that's what I like to do anyway. But there's always that little golden calf that's deep within my heart. That's something that comes and tempts me and challenges me and is testing me to see am I really obeying God? Am I really submitting to God? You know, submission isn't doing what you want to do anyway. We talk about sometimes the millennial generation, but we've been that way in our generation. We've all been that way. We've all been the way where when it comes to something I really don't want to do, I can find a good excuse to not do it. I can congratulate myself on myself on all the other things. This was exactly what the Lord was talking about in Matthew 7 when He said, Judge not that you be not judged. When He said, Why do you look at the little speck in your brother's eye and you got a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? It's the same thing. It's the idea that we can look at someone else who is doing certain things wrong and oh man, that's just awful. I can't believe that you do that. Why are we saying that? Because we would never dream of doing it. Because I'm happy not to do those things. But there are deeper, more challenging things that are within my heart. Maybe they're not as evident. Maybe they're not those open, obvious sins that stand out for everyone to see. But they're hidden in my heart. It is just that Brent, as Brent talked this morning, I mentioned to Brent on the way home, I said, you know what's, what's kind of funny about that, the ending of that story in Joshua 24? As all the people proclaimed, we will get rid of our God, idols and we will only serve you, Lord. They didn't. They didn't. They hid them away a little deeper. Ezekiel chapter 20 even reveals to us that when they got in the land, they still had them. And God swore that He would destroy them. And He eventually did. No, the big ending may not happen right away. But there is a time. There's a time when the prophet comes. And says, your day is done. You ever noticed, you know, every once in a while you'll see someone, it's happened in this church, it's happened in every church I've ever been in, and every church I've ever known. Someone seems to so faithfully serve the Lord for so many years. And you just, you know, you see them every week, you see them every service, you, you, you just see that dedication, and then something happens. 
And we all say to ourselves, what happened? What happened that all of a sudden this person who had shown such faithfulness all of these years, what happened that they fell away, that they turned from God, that they decided to rebel? I don't understand it. I understand it from this standpoint. You find you met your Jehu moment. You finally met the moment when what you wanted to do was what God said. You had been serving God 95% with your whole heart, but God wants the other 5%. I couldn't name it what it is in your life. I know what it is in mine. And it's a challenge. And we we have to understand that. This is the reason in Ezekiel chapter 18, when when God talks about the fact that a guy can live his whole life faithfully and then toward the end turn away from the Lord. And God says, I will not remember any of the good that he's done before. Why? Because he did not obey the Lord. I remember a story years ago that was told me about a father who left a piece of land to his son. And he says, son, I'm going to be gone for a few years. While I'm gone, I want you to build on this land the way I ask you to build on it, and I will give it to you. I want you to build a house right here. I want you to have a barn out over here. And I want you to put a well right next to the barn. Father went away. The son built the house just as the father said, and the son built the barn as the father said. And then the son looked at where he told him to put the well, and he thought to himself, that's kind of a dumb place to put a well. I think I'll put the well over next to the house. And so he did. And the father returned and he's looked at the house. He said, good job, son, just where I wanted it. Took to the barn, fantastic. Hey, where's the well, son? Well, you know, I thought that it might be better over here. And the father said, you didn't obey a thing I said. You put the house where you wanted to put the house. It just happened to coincide with my command. You put the barn where you wanted to put the barn. It just happened to coincide with my command. You put the well where you wanted to put it because you are rebellious. And we need to understand that when we serve God, submission is when I didn't want to and did anyway. Submission is when I attack those particular commands, whether positive or negative, whether go out and talk to others and try to do the best I can, whether it's that or stay away from these sins, whatever it is, submission means I do what God says even if it's not my will. Whose will are we really keeping? Are you just doing the 90%? The test always comes. And we always need to be prepared for it. Remember how many kings toward the end of their good life turned away from God. It's a great warning to us, and especially as we age. If you're not a Christian, we're going to sing a song right now. If there's any way we can help you, we'd be glad to do so. urge you to take that step before it is too late. All together we stand while we sing.